All right, John, today we have on Dr. Jeff Duncan Andrade. Uh, once again, a really incredible conversation. Um, I first came across Jeff uh, when he gave the keynote at a conference I was attending in the San Francisco Bay Area around 2015. Really inspirational, incredible guys. Professor of Latino Latina Studies at San Francisco State University. He's born and raised in East Oakland and has also been teaching English there. He founded a school called the Roses and Concrete School, which is a reference to the famous Tupac poem about the rose that grew from concrete. Um, really incredible thoughts, I think, on education in general, on educating for wellness and flourishing, and ju just an all-around really impressive and incredible and motivating guy. Yeah, I mean, I love this conversation. He. He really, you know, walks the walk, man. He practices what he preaches, and it's it's fascinating, beautiful to, to to hear about what he does in education, how powerfully he's putting into practice the things that he is deeply passionate about and deeply cares about. I loved hearing about his whole, you know, life story up until this point, the reasons he started the Roses in Concrete School and what he's trying to do there. And I particularly loved his his kind of account of the aim of education, youth wellness as the kind of well-being at the core of the whole education experience and how this is something that has to relate to the community more widely. Loved it. Yeah, absolutely. So really great conversation. We just, we could have picked out a million different quotes from this one. Um, like I said, really inspirational guys. So we hope you enjoy our conversation with Jeff Duncan Andrade. Jeff, what's up, man? Oh man. <laughs> busy, busy, like, huh? Just like that. Yeah, my, my uh, son's um, class got a positive COVID oh. last night. So just today, this morning, just been really chaotic. And is he in elementary school? I have twins. Yeah, they're right. um, they're uh, yeah, they're in third grade. Yeah, yeah. So they're they're at the school that we founded oh, um, awesome. you know, like cool. seven or eight years ago. So um, you know, I mean my level of access and information is very, very high. And I still feel very like <laughs> confused and yeah. I can't even imagine what it's like for other parents. So, yeah. Yeah. But you know, it's, yeah. this, this is the world we're living in right now. I want, I want to ask more about it, but we're eventually at some point going to ask you to talk about the school. <laughs> so we'll, we'll kind of just pause it until, until yeah. We, yeah. Get into it a little bit. Yeah. Okay. But, uh, how are things otherwise? Uh, how's it going in the Bay Area more generally? Um, yeah, I mean, about the same. You know, it's yeah. like uh, it, it's it's really hard to know what's coming next. You know, so you just I've always been a pretty dynamic and flexible person. Um, but this is really testing, you know. There's like no predictability. Like it's weird. Yeah. Like I'm, I like being flexible and dynamic, but I also really need like routine in the schedule. Sure. And that's just out the, the window and the door and off the cliff. And, you know, so, um, you know, people are struggling, man. People are really, really struggling. And, um, it's hard to know like how to be supportive. I think one of the things that I'm learning is just how to be a much better listener and not feel like I need to coach or have any answers, but just to, you know, just to listen and just be like, I feel you. Yeah. End of statement. Right. Like, yeah. yeah. So a lot of that, a lot of that with, you know, community and, and family and, um, and, and schools that I'm working with all over the country, I think right. everybody's kind of in the same boat right now. Yeah. Well, to your point, I mean, 
whether you're working from home, whether you're in person, whatever it is, like shit hits the fan so often. And when you're a busy person, you have to have systems, you have to have routines and they just get, they get thrown off constantly. Yeah. Yeah. It's frustrating, but, um, yeah, I, I think just trying to give grace and get grace. Absolutely. Yeah. Easier said than done, of course, but it's an honor to meet you by the way. Thank you thank so much. You. For, thank you so much for giving your time today to do this. Yeah, with us. we really appreciate it, especially amidst everything going on. I mean, we'll make good use of it, but you know, we at yeah. least have to just kind of ask about one more tangent. We both know you're a pretty big sports guy, but you finding any outlets through some of your teams these days? Um, well, shit, the Raiders are like actually in are in a meaningful game. Yep. In January, which is great, and um, you know, the Warriors are unbelievably so great. You know, yeah. I mean, they're they're in a little bit of a funk right now, but you know, you know, you're really really good when when this is what you call a funk. So. So I'm a I'm actually a Michigan State grad. So the you know the Stones are my team. I've got you know the the old school like bad boys hat like 80s style right here. I, I grew up a Pistons fan. Oh, you did? Yeah, because my, uh, Isaiah. Nice. So he, I modeled my game after him. I wore number 11 in every sport I played all the way through college. Oh, and, how cool. Yeah. Um, and, and come to find out, interesting little side fun fact. Um, I, uh, I was asking my mom what time I was born. Uh, because I was trying to do this woman I was dating was trying to get me to do this like app where you put in your birth date and your, t- you know, time. And, and I don't know. Anyway. So I was, I was like, mom, what time was I born? She's like, well, you, you know, you have a copy of your birth certificate. Just look, I don't remember off the, I'm, I'm the youngest of seven. So my mom gets right. a pass. I'm not remembering when I'm born. Um, and so she's like, look at your birth certificate. So I pull out my birth certificate and I was born at 11, 11. Oh, wow. Oh, shit. Yeah. So I was like, wow. And I didn't know that. Like my whole life, I was, and 11's always been my favorite number. I've worn it in everything. I've Like it pops up in my life all the time. You said your sons are reading downstairs. What, what have you got them reading? Because I've been really enjoying listening to your, obviously you're an English teacher and I've been really enjoying listening to your views on reading and curriculum design and so on. What have you got your sons reading? Um, whatever they want. So oh, wow. they're, <laughs> and what they're they pretty, they- they're pretty rangy in their, like they like, a lot of nonfiction, like historical stuff, um, particularly like um, on geography, like the geography of, of places that are, that, you know, that they find interesting. Um, they read a lot of um, like biographies on people that they find interesting. Um, and then, um, and then they read a lot of, um, I, I guess I, it would qualify sort of as like sci-fi fantasy um but it's a lot of this um like there's a series called amulet i don't know do you have little ones i don't okay so there's I, mean, I have series- little niece and nephew yeah but okay like- they, they count how old are they <laughs> uh two and five mine's, okay so they're, they're not they're not two. quite there yet but there's a lot of kids these days are reading these um kind of modified graphic novels. Mm. Um, and what's interesting about a lot of them is a lot of them have um, protagonists that are either women um, or, or girls, sometimes it's girls, sometimes it's women, um, and that are people of color. Um, and so it's very normal for them, right, to have 
um, those kinds of relationships to like courage and strength and, um, but yeah, they read like voraciously. Like I can, I can just tell them like, go read. And then I'm good for like two hours. That's great. Yeah. Take, taking up to you clearly. Well, um, and yeah. I, I think COVID has been like such a major contributor to this. Cause like, what the fuck else are you going to do? Like there's yeah. only so much, you know, yeah. like yeah. only so many rounds of monopoly we can play right before. Yeah. So well, to your point too, some of the evolution and the, the appropriate representation, you know, of, of persons of color. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen that viral photo going around of the little guy standing in front of the TV for Encanto. Uh, you know, the new, oh, like, I the new, I think it's the new Pixar movie. Yeah. Yeah. Cute little guy, you know, one of the characters, cute little guy, nice little kind of fro curls, whatever. And there's a, there's a kid that looks almost identical to him. And the the image is just him standing in front of the TV, big cheesy grin. And, and it just says, this is why representation matters. It's, it's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Oh, that's dope. I haven't seen that. Yeah. So first, Jeff, we'd love to just like kind of get into your background a little bit. Um, you know, John and I are, are somewhat aware, but we'd love for you to just kind of share with uh, our listeners, you know, obviously you exist in the Bay Area, but you've been there, sounds like pretty much your whole life. And just talk a little bit about, you know, your upbringing, some of those experiences, and maybe kind of how that's formed the work you do now and some of the, the priorities that are, are at the forefront of your agenda at the moment. Okay. Um yeah, so th- thank you for for having me and spending a little bit of time and uh, creating some space for me to run my mouth a little bit. <laughs> um, so yeah, I was I was actually born in LA, mm. um, youngest of seven kids. Where um, in LA? Um, it, it, just outside of um, like East LA. Okay. Um, so, and then um, we sort of migrated. Um, up the I-5. So um, lived in Sacramento, just outside of Sacramento for a little bit of time. And then we just kept going up the I-5, um, you know, dealing with some some family challenges that um, I think in, encouraged us to try to keep re- relocating. Um, and we ended up in Oregon um, for a while. And then um, and then I came back to uh, Cali for undergrad. I went to Berkeley, um, and and part of what I think um, I felt growing up was that once I had more control over my life, um, that I would I wouldn't move around a lot. That I would just um, mm. f- find right an adopted home since I didn't have a home you know, in, in, in that same way. Right. So, um, when I got to, um, when I got back to, um, California and, and Oakland specifically, um, I, I just kind of felt like this is where I'm, this is where I'm supposed to be. So I haven't left. Um, I've been here since I was 17. Um, and I'm 50 now, so you can, you know, do the math around that. Um, there was a couple of years where I went back to LA, um, on a postdoc at UCLA. Um, and, and, uh, and, and what I realized there was that I'm, I'm one of those rare cuts that, um, is totally comfortable in Southern California and Northern California. I I really (laughs) love, I really love LA a lot. Um, it's one of the few cities that I feel like I could live in, uh, you know, outside of Oakland. Um, but yeah, so I've, I've really 
um, made a deep um, investment in in Oakland and have felt like Oakland has really deeply invested in me and in my family. Um, so I live now in in East Oakland um, on a thirty four hundred block where I've lived now for you know over a decade and a half um, in in our family home um, and have taught in this community for. Um, or and or been a school leader for you know 25 plus years um and yeah i think that that my, my childhood experience um growing up and experiencing um both uh you know the the realities of um of urban or, or urban poverty and or, or kind of the 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 challenges of urbanity Generally, and then um, in Oregon, seeing um, the other side of the coin, like really deeply entrenched, um, more rural poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, the county that that we were in in Oregon is one of the poorest counties in in the nation. Okay, um, and so it really helped me to, um, I think, um, understand the way in which suffering. And unearned suffering um, cuts across so many groups, um, and has allowed me to be really um, empathic towards um, folks that uh, find themselves in different ways situated on the margins um, of our society and and feeling locked out um, of the the opportunity or the option um, to do anything about that. And so that I think um, has shaped my work, um, my life for sure. Yeah. Um, and then the way in which I approach the work really profoundly and like really always trying to keep the focus on um, where I feel like it matters most, which is a focus on um, the most vulnerable ones. Um, and, and particularly, you know, by virtue of my work, vulnerable children. Mm-hmm. Um, and by extension, their families um, and, and communities, but but really, really focused on what it means for us to build communities, to build a society um, that is paying attention to the unearned suffering that we force onto children all the time and um, paying attention to the ways in which schools oftentimes are are significant contributors to that woundedness, right, mm-hmm. and to that um, suffering, and um, and and at the same time, you know, I I got into teaching when Jonathan Kozal's work was all the rage, um, and particularly his pro- probably most widely read book is a book called Savage Inequalities. And it was like mandatory reading for every like teacher when I first started teaching. And um, and I found um, his work problematic in, in a lot of ways when a lot of people were just, you know, loving it. Right. And, and I found it to be somewhat problematic because I was on the ground, you know, doing the work and it just felt like expose. Mm-hmm. And there. Um, and 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 like a, a a righteous critique, like his writing was excellent and very compelling. But you know, I would I would read you know pages and pages and pages, and I ended up going back and you know doing my doctorate work, and I'm reading all this stuff, and it was like there was this massive 
national commitment to um, to expose, right? Just talking about how messed up schools are and how messed up teachers are and how messed up, right? Inequality is, but there was there was no solutions, right? It was just a recycling of the same critique. Yeah, and there's one of my famous favorite Cornell West quotes is there is no affirmation through negation. And I felt like what was happening in the kind of the broader um, liberal progressive critical circles that I was in and, and definitely in the Academy was, was just that, that it was just negation. And um, so I wanted to spend my life and career I think critique is really important. I do. Like if you've ever read my work, like, you yeah, know, yeah, like yeah. establishing a yeah. clear critique of the systems is, I, I think is really important. And, um, but I also want to affirm something, right? So I wanted to use the tools of research and I wanted to use my practice to say two things. One, it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be this way because it can be this way. Right. And so a lot of my work and effort has been about really trying to keep keep the thumb on the critique and saying this is not just this is not democratic and saying that um, that it can be right. And, and lifting up the practice of other educators and lifting up lessons I've learned from my own practice so that we can start moving towards solutions Mm -hmm. um, without, you know, we still need to critique. Right. But, um, but I want to, I, I want my legacy, I guess I, I want my work, um, to be telling a story of what is possible as much as it tells a story of what, what shouldn't be happening. Mm -hmm. Right. And I'm trying to understand also the, the, the timeline here, Jeff, as to your career into teaching, because as I understand, you've been teaching almost, you said 25 plus years, I understand it's almost 30 years, uh, at you know, English as an English teacher, you must have, if I understand it right, you must have started that during your PhD studies, right? Teaching. I started teaching. I had my first class when I was twenty. I couldn't even drink. Right. That was challenging. <laughs> um, and so, yeah. So I started. I started subbing when I was twenty in Oakland, um, and then became a, a full time you know, English literature teacher. Um, and did that for, um, gosh, uh, over a decade, and then um, and then went back to get my PhD along uh, with a okay. really close friend of mine uh, um, who's does incredible work too. You should also interview his name's Ernest Morell. He's at the University of, or he's in Notre Dame. Um, and um, I'll try not to hold that against him as a Spartan, <laughs> but <laughs> well, he was at Michigan State. Oh, That's all, he, the, all the more reason yeah. then. We'll so, reach yeah, out. <laughs> he'll, he'll have lots of, you know, Spartan stories for you. Cool. Um, so uh, anyway, um, we we taught together across the hall from each other in Oakland um, and then went back to get our PhDs together and kept teaching. We kept teaching. We kept coaching while we were doing the PhD program full time. Right. Um, so I, I never left the classroom, right? But I, I um, then I was straddling those two spaces, and and that's really where I got super frustrated, right, with what was happening in the academy because 
you know, we're, we're reading all this stuff, you know, bottle Fede and critical pedagogy and, you know, and then, and then every day Ernest and I are driving back and we're on the ground and we're like, this is so like wildly disconnected mm-hmm. from what actually is happening. Right. And, um, and we struggled in the conversations there because we were trying to force um, a conversation about the reality of the conditions of schools and communities and, and the academy kept pushing it up to the 30,000 foot level. Right. Um, and so kept teaching through that. And then, um, and then uh, postdoc went down to UCLA um, and, um, and started teaching there and doing a lot of work with teachers um, in South central LA um, and then came back to um, the Bay Area after two years. It was a three-year postdoc, and I, I, I um, left after two to come back up here and to help a really close friend of mine, another person you should have on a podcast. His name's uh, Kay Wayne Yang. He's at um, UC San Diego in Ethnic Studies. Okay. Um, he's, he's the best uh, uh, high school science teacher I've ever been around. I mean, absolutely stunningly talented. Um, and brilliant brilliant um anyway uh he uh along with our community was opening a school called east oakland community high school which was a high school that was based on the black panther model of schooling um and so um i came back up here and jumped in on that and started teaching um uh on the books i think it was an english literature class but we really shaped it like a sociology class Mm -hmm. and um and so, and, and that's when I started doing this cohort model. Um, so I was full-time faculty at the university, tenure track faculty. And then I would volunteer as a high school teacher. So I started doing this cohort model where I would take a group of 25 to 30 kids and then I would loop with them. I would be their high school teacher for th- three or four consecutive years, right? So I'd have them from ninth to 12th grade. And I did that for another 10, 12 years. Um, and, and I, I was actually doing that as a teacher, but not, it wasn't, it was, um, it was like, uh, informal. So, because I would, um, I would recruit, I had good relationships with the, with the academic counselors. And so I would recruit kids from my high school classes that nobody else wanted. So a lot of the, the quote unquote throwaway kids, right. Um, we would just cohort them. And between me and Ernest and and Wayne, who had math and science locked down, you know, me and Ernest had social studies in English and 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 PE because we were sports right coaches, and we had this really dope um, college counselor, uh, and so we basically created you know an underground railroad where we would take a lot of the kids that were um, that people just were not trying to support, and we just cohort them. And, and so we were doing that informally. And then once I got my PhD and they weren't paying me anymore, um, then I could do it formally. So I started a program um, called East Oakland Step to College. I did, actually didn't start it. I resurrected it. So it's, it was, it actually started in the College of Ethnic Studies okay. um, and at San Francisco State. And it was, the idea was to partner the College of Ethnic Studies with K-12 schools and get 
uh, faculty of color in more direct contact with high school kids. Um, and, um, and then it kind of died out because it was so dependent on faculty wanting to do that. Um, and so when I came to San Francisco state from UCLA, um, that was one of the things that I wanted to, um, reignite was to bring that program back. Um, and so I did that for another 12 years, um, going through three different cohorts of kids, um, and, um, and really using, uh, literature paired with like social theory and sociology to do these, um, you know, analytics of not just of literature, but of kind of the broader society, um, to give young people a language and a skill set to feel like, um, one, they could elevate their voice around issues of, of justice. Um, and two, that they could, um, that they could organize and strategize to actually do something about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's uh, super interesting to hear this background. The reason I say it's so interesting is I was first exposed to you. I can't actually remember the year, but you gave a lunchtime keynote at the new teacher conference in San Francisco. And I was working in a school and I was work- basically serving as a teacher mentor. So I'm sitting there having lunch, working on my PhD, studying Maslow, pause psych, you know, eudaimonic well-being, all sorts of different stuff, right? And you get on that stage and you just start bringing it and you walk through what I what I now realize is a really terrific TED Talk as well, which we're going to link in the show notes. Um, but you, you started laying out exactly what you just talked about, which is a critique and talking about the reality on the ground, right? But you also started talking about solutions, right? And things that you were doing and actions that you were taking um, in order to kind of address the issue. I'd love it if you would walk us through a little bit some of these, uh, the finer points from that talk. Um, You know, what you were looking at, some of the connections to kind of core basic needs, but ultimately how that led you to create the Roses and Concrete School. And I I know I'm laying, layering multiple things on you here. But you got it. You got to explain for the audience kind of the reasoning behind the name because it's such yeah. an excellent metaphor, and I think it ties together really nicely. Okay, so maybe we'll start there. I think yeah. that, that um, you know, I, I I think that there's a reason that um, Tupac Shakur's work, in particular, um, has been so transcendent, um, both across sort of all the groups that we might, right, categorize young people in, right, gender, race, class, um, geography, um, and um, that his his message um, still remains um, compelling and um, and engaging for young people today. And it's, it's, you know, I think weaker-minded people attribute that to it being, you know, performance and, you know, and, and hip hop. And, and, and it's clearly not that because, um, you don't find that right in other, um, other people, with other yeah. hip hop artists, right. Yeah. Nobody's been quite so transcendent as Pac. And, um, and so I, I really, I spent a lot of time, um, studying Tupac and, and really trying to understand what is it about his message? that is so compelling and why is it so compelling, particularly to the young people that I was working with that that were the most disconnected, 
that were the most vulnerable, that were the most wounded, why were they so drawn to pop, right? And I think that um, a lot of it is, is captured in the title of his book of poetry, which is also the title of probably his best-known poem, um, which is that where he kind of lays out that metaphor of the rose that grows from concrete, right? And he says um, in, in the poem um, and in, in the various performances he's done of that poem that, um, that um, if, you, if you see a rose growing in the concrete, you, you don't question its damaged petals. You celebrate its tenacity and its will to reach the sun. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I think that, um, that that metaphor is precisely um, an illumination of what I see in, in the classrooms of the most successful and accomplished teachers is that they, one, like they know, they know that these young people are growing up in concrete. They understand the, the absurdity of that and, and the amazingness of that. Right. That, that young people are still finding a way. They're still showing up to school when they have every reason to no longer trust school, to yeah. no longer trust this society. They're still they're still fighting their way up through that concrete anyway. Right. And so, of course, they're going to have damaged pedals. But. It's a choice. It's an adult choice. It's an institutional choice about what it is that we choose to focus on first. And I think so many educators and schools that really struggle to reach the young people that need us the most are struggling because their focus point is their damaged pedals and they can't see their tenacity. They can't see their will to reach the sun. And the the minute a young person experiences that with an adult, right? The trust is ruptured. It's like, how can you not see this? How can you not see the hell I had to go through mm-hmm. just to get to school, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and it's not that I don't want to grow. It's not that I don't want to be called out on the things I need to improve on. That's not what young people are saying. They're saying, first, can you asset map? First, can you see and honor my sacredness, right? And, and, and can you see and honor and acknowledge the ridiculous situation that I'm being put in as a child. And because if you start there, right, which is the acknowledging of the tenacity in the world to reach the sun, and then spending the time to really understand what is the concrete, right? What are the things that this young person is experiencing that are, are totally outside of their control, that are getting in the way of them being who they really genuinely, authentically in their sangre, in their DNA, right? In their ancestral traditions, like this is who they really are, right? right. And, right. and all these things are in the way of this. And my job as a teacher is to bust up the concrete, right? I, I think the best teachers are first and foremost bulldozers. Right. And but you got to know what you need to bulldoze, which means you got to pay attention right to each child and what's going on in the material conditions in their life and then figure, okay, how do I clear that out of the way? And I think a lot of the narrative is that these roses are broken. Right. These children are broken. And so we're going to fix them. Right. And and my mother's 92. Um, Bless her heart. She just had knee surgery. And is like back up walking around. And, you know, one of the things that she uh, 
said to me once is, and I think a lot of our, you know, adult mentors and parents have said this to us is if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. But the narrative in so many classrooms and schools is about fixing broken youth. And, and that's why so many young people disconnect from school because they know they're not broken. Children are not broken. The society we're building is broken. Yeah. Schools are broken. Yeah. Right. And so those are the, for me, those are the fixed points. And that metaphor really captures that. Right. And then when you start looking at the concrete and what happens to a living thing that is forced to grow in, you know, concrete is perhaps the worst possible conditions in which you can attempt to grow. Right. Devoid of light, devoid of key nutrients. And on top of all that, it's toxic. Right. Mm -hmm. The chemicals in the concrete toxify the soil. So given that, um, I think. If, if we're going to create community responsive practices, if we're going to create community responsive schools, if we're going to create wellness in, amongst our young people, then the starting point has to be dealing with the material conditions and the historical conditions under which they're growing, right? And that requires us to then start looking in fields that I think schools have not spent a lot of time looking at. So social epidemiology, right? Public health, neuroscience, physiology, you know, all of these fields are having massive breakthroughs in the last 10 to 20 years in understanding how toxic stress specifically and the conditions of inequality that contribute to toxic stress. We we have so much learning now about how that actually affects the body and the brain. Mm -hmm. And schools are way, way behind the learning curve Mm -hmm. about, look, when a child is exposed unrelentingly to toxic stressors, there are things going on inside their body and their brain that if you have going to have a fighting chance at all of engaging them in the school project, you've got to understand and you've got to be able to read those reactions differently. But what happens in schools is that we react to the reaction, right? And now everybody's fighting from their heels. And to get up on the balls of your feet, right, to be able to lean into what we need to be able to do for young people, you've got to understand what's going on inside their body, right? Because the the, the outward manifestation of that normalizes reactive behavior, right? Like you're not supposed to behave like that. You're not supposed to say that. That's inappropriate, right? And and we have to let all that control and institutional ego go and seek understanding. Why would a child go through hell to get to school to screw that up? That, That makes no sense. Right. So then they must not want to screw it up, but they, but they are. Yeah. Right. Okay. Why? Right. Mm-hmm. What's going on right inside of them. And this is why I say you have to win the heart to win the head. And we keep banging on their heads 
right? More tutoring, more reading and writing time, more math time. And like, you know, Einstein said it best, <laughs> you know, doing the same thing over and over again, and expecting different results is the definition of insanity. There may be no institution more insane than the institution of public school in this country. <laughs> we keep banging the same drum. That's right. That's right. Yep. Expecting yep. a different beat. Hmm. Right. And, and, and part of that is because where we're going looking for answers. But if we turn to some of these other fields, like the ones that I've named, there's really profound answers there that help you to then rethink the moment, right? The, the moment when that child starts losing themselves, right? What we do in that moment as adults has a massive impact on what happens next, right? And I think being it without deep understanding about what's going on for that child physiologically, neurologically, it's really hard to come up with a responsive solution that de-escalates and creates an environment of care and wellness. And so we default to power, right? We default to punishment. Knowing full well doesn't feel good for us, doesn't feel good, good for the child, right? But it's a blunt object that allows us to respond to an institutional set of constraints that haven't been rethought. Hell yeah. Um, and I want to, I want to give space to John here to kind of take us towards like flourishing wellness. You, you mentioned so many important terms, heart to the head, right. Getting lost in uh, the moment. Um, like I spent a lot of time studying flow. That's what my dissertation was on. I want to make a quick comment that part of the reason why at that conference, you just grabbed my attention when I was sitting there. Right. Um, aside from like the, the shitty conference food, um, the, like <laughs> I've spent, I've spent time in schools on both ends of the socio socioeconomic spectrum. Right. And so a lot of what you're saying resonates in my time spent on one end of that spectrum, but also a lot of what you're saying resonates for that kind of far end of the spectrum where material needs aren't actually a concern, but kids are still miserable. A lot of the time they're disengaged, they're lost. Yeah. It's all about the head. It's not about the heart. And I spent yeah. a decade in a, in a highly, highly privileged school looking at kids who I loved and adored and said, this can't be it. This can't be the best way to do this. Right. And that eventually led me to kind of look at like I said, intrinsic motivation and meaning and Maslow and all these sorts of things. But I want to give John space to kind of take us that route and we'll, we'll dig into the details a little bit more. Sure. Well, thank you, Nick. And thank you, Jeff, for these wonderful answers. It's so fascinating to learn about your work and life up to this point. And, and the passion with which you speak is, is really uh, laudable uh, to hear here. Um, so, I mean, I want to bring us into your, you, you talked about wellness. And I, as I understand it, you, you hold the view that youth wellness is the aim of education. It's, it's what schools should be doing and facilitating. And we can connect this up with uh, what you said about setting up the, the Roses in Concrete School, the, the school you, you, you founded. Um, I mean, you must have had a vision there of, of what your kind of aim, if you like, or your philosophy of education behind that was. And I'm wondering if that's maybe where this, this idea you had of youth wellness being the aim of education being kind of something you try to you you are trying to achieve through the Roses in Concrete School and through your teaching more widely, and I mean I wonder if we can then connect that up with human flourishing because it's widely and increasingly believed that the ultimate aim of education is to support human flourishing. So proponents of this view include UNESCO, 
Positive Psychology, the Church of England, the Jubilee Centre for Character and Virtues in the UK. And of course, these views differ, but it's, it, it ties in very well with youth wellness. And it seems to me, well, we'll be interested to hear what you, how, you, how you define youth wellness, but that's one way of describing or one definition of human flourishing. So, I mean, could you say what you, what you mean by youth wellness and why you think that's the aim of education? And did that, is that something you've tried to embody in the Rosing Concrete School as its ultimate aim as a, as a school? Um, yes, it, it, it has been, um, and it, it, hands down the, um, the work of trying to, um, build our own school in our community is the hardest thing I've ever done in, in the work. And, and maybe the hardest thing I've ever done in my life outside of you know, having twin boys, <laughs> um, which tr- trumps everything. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, it's really, really hard. Um, and I think it, it part of what was so challenging was um, there was so much hope and desire for roses to work in the way that we drew it up on the whiteboard. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I've said any number of times that everything works on the whiteboard, but on, on the ground, it's messy. Yeah. And, and I think people um, really struggle with the mess. They really struggle to find meaning in the mess. They, they really struggle to understand. And, and when I say they, I, mean, I include myself, right, um, that to um, embrace the fact that to build something from scratch um, is so incredibly challenging and made even more challenging when you're trying to do it inside of the institutional constraints, mm-hmm. right? And, and, um, and so, you know, over the eight years that we've had roses or nine years now, I can't even remember how long it's been, but like it's gone through so many morphs and iterations and changes and, and, um, and pain, you know, really pain at um, not being able to fully deliver on um, the vision, not being able to loose ourselves from the the institutional toxicity and constraints that comes with being a public school inside of this nation state, right? Mm-hmm. Then then throw in COVID, right? Just for fun, right? <laughs> and all of the, right, the complexity of those layers. So, um, you know, but yes, like at the end of the day, um, what, what I've said is that, um, I believe that the, the responsibility of schools, um, is singular. So almost all my, my teaching was at high school. I taught for a, a few years in middle school. And Roses was a was an elementary school. You know, we opened as like a K two, maybe K three. Can't remember now. Um, and I never really spent much time in that environment. And my kids weren't school aged yet. Okay, so something happened, um, literally on the first day, that then repeated itself year over year, that changed me. And that something was drop off. So every morning I would stand out on the front, on the front of the school 
and greet children and greet families. Um, and on that first day, I experienced something that I've never experienced as an educator, that I had never experienced as an educator, which was I experienced the profundity of what it means for a parent to entrust their child to a school. Because I watched these parents bring their six-year-olds and seven-year-olds and eight-year-olds, like truly physically vulnerable beings, different from high school, right? Where parents don't really drop kids off at high school. In fact, children work really hard to not have that happen at the high school level, mm -hmm. right? So working with parents at the high school level, very different than elementary school. And what I watched on that first day and then recurrent day after day after day was these parents holding their children's hands, walk them to the front of the school, hand them over to us, and then turn their backs and walk away. And I was like, wow, this is maybe the most profound thing I've ever experienced as an educator. <laughs> that, that the trust that you have to have to do that. Like, and, yeah. and, and now I'm a father, right? And while this is happening, and my little almost, ones are you know, just learning that. how to, and I'm just like, yo, like, I don't even know if I could do this with the school that I helped to found. And wow. you're doing this, and you've never even met me, right? Like, I mean, I was brought to tears over and over and over again, just how deep that was. And yeah, then, yeah. and then to watch the institution act as if it's normal, like that <laughs> shit is not normal. <laughs> you know what I'm saying, right? And so then I, I really started thinking about this, about like, wow, what is our responsibility given that? And so what I believe is the responsibility of every school is a singular promise that when you parent guardian give me your child at eight in the morning i promise you that when you pick them up at three or three thirty that they will be more well than when you drop them off that's it and i know as a very experienced educator that that is impossible for me to do every day with every child I can't deliver on that pro promise, but I don't think that families actually expect you to. They just want to know that you, you, A, you're going to make that promise, and B, that when you miss the mark, because you're human, because you're fallible, that you will own it, that you will atone. And atonement is another thing that has really um, bubbled up to the surface for me as as a key component of wellness that because I think what we teach in schools is apology and apology and atonement are not the same thing. So children learn like they can do harm and then they say, sorry and mean it. And it's all good. Right. And there's no expectation that if you do harm, that there has to be an investment to, yes, you need to apologize. But part of owning the harm is then seeking ways to repair it, mm -hmm. right? That, that's atonement. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want schools to apologize when they screw up. 
I want schools to atone when they screw up, which means that, right, they apologize, they own it, right? And they, and they know that the next day, extra medicine has to be poured in around that child because they missed the mark the day before. Yeah. Now, that was the intent and design of roses. That has been the intent and the design of my practice for as far back as I can remember and imperfect every single day. But I think that um, the reason, one of the reasons why schools would struggle to do this is because they don't measure wellness. And, and as um, uh, uh, Angela Duckworth says, she says, you measure what you treasure, right? I've heard it said, uh, you, you, you measure what matters. And children know this. So we can talk about wellness and restorative justice and PBIS and all of these uh, flourishing family care, love, all we want, right? Kids know it's bullshit because they know we're not measuring it, right? And, but we are measuring a bunch of stuff, right? We're measuring attendance, right? We're measuring disciplinary infractions. We're measuring reading. We're measuring writing. We're measuring math. And so at the end of the day, kids know that at the end of the day, that's what you actually care about. And if it really comes down to it, if it really comes down to my reading score or my college going application and my wellness, you're going to choose the former over the latter, mm-hmm. right? Because that's, that's what you're measuring. So can we, can we, this, this beautiful promise that you want schools to make, Jeff, and that you've made um, your school make, um, that your child will be more well when you pick them up at the end of the school day than when you drop them off. Can we get get a bit more on the details of what exactly youth wellness then is? I mean, how is this kind of a kind of complete, if you like, the complete well-being of the child? I mean, you mentioned, you know, a couple of aspects of it, but um what 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 exactly do you how exactly would you define youth wellness? It's morphed over the years and eventually came to be known as uh, CRE or community responsive education. Um, and now we're, we're pivoting off into some some different directions um, at, at the end of this year. But um, we, we've done some some, I think, really important work around this. Um, and one of the one one piece of that work has been answering that question, John, to yeah. say, well, what, what do we mean when we say wellness? Right. So um, we have created this definition, which I dropped in the chat and I'll read for the purposes of yeah, your listening this is audience. Right? Great. Yeah, that's um, awesome. So so we define uh uh, wellness as the harmonizing of mind, body, emotion, and spirit. It is cultivated and sustained through healthy relationships that are responsive to the lived experiences and the historical and material conditions that shape them. Community responsive wellness strengthens the sacred link between self-actualization and community actualization in three domains. One, the inner self, a strong sense of culture, identity, and agency, Two, the interpersonal a rootedness and commitment to showing empathy toward family, community, and peers. And three, interconnectedness, positive interrelatedness to ancestors, place, land, and the natural world. This grows ecosystems where people and communities experience place, power, purpose, awareness, resilience, empathy, hope, love, and joy. Awesome. That is in my head, right? The purpose of public schools. Um, and the work that, that I'm trying to do with schools is to get them to a place where they will literally 
because I, I mean, like, it's really hard to find very many people who would be like, no, I'm against that. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, so people are signing on. Right. But, but how you sign on matters. Okay. This, because what they want to do is they want to create a program. They want to create a, a project that they add on to the, all the things that the school's already doing. That is not wellness. Right. And that it's the, the, the metaphor, the kind of the image that I like to give is, is the idea of like you have this overflowing plate. Right. Of of things that schools are holding. Teacher, even teachers love talking about the plate. Always talk about the plate. It's always overflowing for teachers. Always overflowing. Stuff's falling off. Right. Teachers yep. can't hold it all. Right. Yep. And now we're going to bring this and add it on. Right. Well, the problem with adding on to an overflowing plate is the first thing to fall off is the thing you just added on. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's why we spent a lot of time really focusing on, on measuring this. Right. And saying that, look, if you're going to do this, the first thing you have to do is dump your plate, empty it. Yeah. And then this goes at the center and the core. This is foundational. Everything else, every single day at every single moment, can stop to focus on this. Nothing else matters but this. Because if you get this right with children, reading, writing, math, attendance, community, participation, engagement, they all take care of themselves. They're way easier. And and we know this, we know this factually, right, in the medical field. You know, what, what, uh, there's a scholar who, who I, I really, really respect and, and a, a friend and her, her name's uh, Tiffany Marie, Tiffany Marie Johnson. She, her work around this is like, to me, like miles and miles ahead of everybody else. She's another one you should get on the show. But, um, you know, she, she made this point to me that, that she's like, you know, Jeff, like our elders and ancestors have been saying this forever. Mm-hmm. But now suddenly Western science agrees, right? Now there's hard science. And so suddenly it's true, right? And, and, and she's absolutely right. And fine. Like if what you need is like evidence, there's so much evidence about this across all of these fields that, that mainstream and power value when it's convenient. But you, that's not really where I go looking. I go looking to my abuelita, right? I go looking to my, because they've always understood that the only thing that matters with our children is their well-being. This is why when you, when you get around your elders, they're always doing a wellness check on you. And I don't know if you remember that from your childhood, but when you really think about the elders that really cared about you, they never fucking asked about your GPA or your <laughs> reading scores or any of that, right? They were like, how are you doing? Yeah. Because I know if you're doing well, then your reading scores and your writing scores, all those things, they're going to take care of themselves. And I know that if you have great reading scores and writing scores and you're not well, it's not going to matter. Right. And to your point, Nick, about like these these middle class and wealthy schools. Right. The myth making that goes on around. Right. The good schools needs that myth has to be. I mean, where are the school shootings happening? Hell yeah. 
You know, like how many more messages do we need that that wealthy and middle class kids are suffering too? Shit and, ain't and, working. And why do they go to school to do the shooting? Over and over. What, what is the message right, that they're trying to send that it is this place where I'm going to put my exclamation point on all of the suffering and all the woundedness that you ignored year after year after year? Because this is the epicenter where yeah. I'm suffering the most. And it's the place where I'm going to have my cathartic release. Right. And and if we are going to make this shift to this, and this doesn't have to be the definition, right? For us, this is a starting point. This is not the definition, right? It's a collective definition put together by some of the leading uh, uh, researchers in the field, by indigenous healers, by elders, by parents, by children, by teachers. It was a collective effort over the course of an entire year before we went into COVID to create this definition. And all we're saying is, look, this doesn't need to be your definition. Just use this as a starting point for a conversation about what wellness would mean in your community. Please don't try to carbon copy because wellness in your community needs to reflect the realities of your community, which is not the reality of my community. And that's another major sticking point for school. Yeah is we keep thinking that oh, a good school needs to look like this, whether it's in Detroit, East Oakland, or the suburbs, right? And that is, that's bad practice. I would say it's malpractice, mm -hmm. right? And so I think you can start a conversation about what wellness is, and then that needs to be the center of the focus, the purpose, and the foundation of that project with those young people and families. And it needs to be iterative, right? Because the ways in which wellness needs shift over time, not just for an individual, but for a, for a collective or a community needs to be attended to as well. And schools really struggle to be dynamic. They're so rigid, they're so conservative, right? Which is what makes this such a challenge. Yeah. John's going to double click on some of that in a minute. That's a beautiful definition. And, and I want to tease out some of the, the dynamics between sort of the individual and the collective in that as well, which I think is really beautiful. I just have to share an anecdote because you mentioned your, your Abuelita. In 2016-17, we had Dr. Karen Rybich from UPenn's Pause Psych Center out to the school I was working at. She and I were sitting there eating lunch. We're talking about positive psychology as a field, and she uses the exact phrase with me. She says, it's science that's catching up to grandma. Yep. It's all the same shit we've heard all of our lives. Just give it time, right? Adaptation. Um, yeah. you know, try to find the silver linings, cognitive framing, like all these different sorts of things. So when you said that, you probably saw the big cheesy smile on my face. It's like, yep, that's exactly what it is. But so I just yeah. had to share that anecdote. Yeah, that's a great anecdote. Um, Jeff, thank you so much for sharing this extremely rich definition of, of youth wellness. Am I, am I right in understanding, first of all, that because you define this as community responsive wellness. So these are the same things. Youth wellness is community responsive wellness. Yeah, I, we had a lot of discussion about this, um, it, both internally and in our community about like, is there such a thing as youth wellness mm -hmm. or is there just wellness? Mm. Right. And, and, and would 
if you thought about all the things that would make a child well, yeah, would that list be different for a grown-up? And and I think what we more or less landed on was no, that there is there is human wellness, right? There is there is right there is community wellness. And I think the reason we put community there is to say that because so much of school, including Maslow, right, is about the individual, mm-hmm. right? We're going to metric the individual. We're going to gauge uh, achievement, wellness, whatever, right, based on the individual. And what we're saying is, no, that, I mean, yes, but no, right, that, that yes, we need to pay attention to individual wellness, but only to the degree that it it manifests in collective wellness. You can't be well in isolation. This is why like human isolation is so toxic for the human body, right? And the brain and the and the heart and the soul and spirit. So um I think it's 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 really hard to when you think about what we mean when we say wellness, it's I mean, we're, we're writing, we wrote this and we, we've done this work in a way that where we've really tried to start a conversation that I think needs to be um, more like, I don't, I don't want to get like postmodern here, but it, yeah. like it needs to be um, transcendent yeah. of a lot of the structures and norms that we've created because we have to acknowledge the interdependency. Yeah. Right. And that's why that third piece, the inter, right. We talk about the inner self, right. We talk about the interpersonal and then we talk about the interconnected. Mm-hmm. Right. And that there's, I think there's ways in which you can work on those things individually, right. As, as a particular domain, but you always have to come back to what, what does the interpersonal mean as it relates to the interconnected? Yeah. So, I mean, I like the way that in this definition, you, you, kind of it builds levels of connection moving from the self to the interpersonal to then interconnectedness more broadly right through to ancestors place land and the natural world as you put it and and then you you know use the word ecosystems which really captures the broadness of this connection um it's 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 fascinating and there's so much to go into here but i want to go into one specific point connected with what you said about the role of elders in education and and their focus on wellness i think that that really gets to then how this aim, how you try to achieve the same through education. Uh, because various efforts to focus on uh, the development of well-being in education as a goal and flourishing as a goal, where well, that's defined in terms of well-being, often make the, you know, the development of well-being sit on the periphery of education. So you've got your academic classes, and then you've got some co-curricular activities where students engage in various well-being exercises, let's say. They're outside the, the kind of core aims of education. So you've got like the, the epistemic aims of education, the learning, the gaining of knowledge, understanding. And then you've got, if you like, the well-being aims, and they're quite distinct. And there's efforts to try and tie them together, but often they're seen as separate. Now, as, as you said, you know, the way that elders typically speak about, you know, education, um, they focus on how, how, how are you doing, how well are you? And as you said it, Kind of your grades will follow from that. Your performance at school will follow from that if you're well, which kind of suggests a kind of relationship between wellness and achieving those epistemic aims of education, that they're interconnected and that those, you know, the learning will follow better as long as you are well in education. So I'm curious to how you've kind of tried to embed this within the Rosing Concrete School. I mean, one example that I'd like to maybe ask you about is that... Um, a point you make about school curriculum design is that the students you teach today 
in Oakland engage more closely with the poetry of Tupac than with the work of Shakespeare. In some of your talks, you argue that it's not that the kids aren't interested in literacy. It's that they're not interested in the literacy that we're giving them and that we need to give school children literature they can connect with and that resonates with their lives. And you point out there's no debate about this in research. So is that one example of you trying to kind of achieve the aim of youth wellness and education by you know, designing a curriculum that resonates more deeply with children, where they kind of really just lose themselves in it, to kind of use a, a kind of a quote you said earlier, that they're just lost in this thing instantly, completely immersed in it as a way of developing wellness education and that helping to achieve your learning goals better. Yeah, I mean, what you just said is is a really clear example of the fact that um, schools aren't really um, interested in or designed or committed to um, teaching kids to learn or teaching kids to read. They're committed to compliance. And um, and so it's like, I, I don't really care if you read. I just want you to read what I want you to read. Right. And it's like, well, right. why is that? Like, I want kids to just read. Right. And, and so I think we've created this canon, right. This is all kind of the legacy of colonialism, yeah. right. And the control of knowledge that begins with the control of what knowledge children get access to, what knowledge the society deems as worthy, right. Of, of that time. And the, you know, history will write us uh, out poorly around this because of the ways in which it profoundly um, uh, stagnates uh, human creativity. Um, and you know, it, it's perhaps the the one of the most profound indictments of of public schools is um, how how Einstein did there. Mm-hmm. You know, like the fact that if it doesn't work for that dude, right? Like, <laughs> come on, right? So, yeah, I, I think that um, what we've tried to do um, at at Roses, and again, to you know, to to some variance, right, is um, is to create the conditions under which um, young people are um, given access to um, some of the skills that you need to then go sleuth out the things that are, you know, most um, compelling and engaging to you. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so there, you know, like you do have to build skills. Um, but I, I think how you do that and, and the ways in which you really listen to young people, right? You listen, not, not just to what they say, right? But to all the, the teaching that their bodies and their energy and their lives are getting, giving to us. Then you're more and more likely to create educational spaces that they feel are compelling, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think that, that we've used the term engagement a lot. And, and I have too. And, and I think maybe the word compelling is better. Right. Because if it's compelling, it's by definition engaging. Right. But but I've seen a lot of young people be sort of like forced or tricked into engagement, but they're not compelled. You know what I mean? Like I watch my son. He's eight going on 80. Um, But he I woke up this morning. This happens so often and it's just so moving to me. Right. So. I, I woke up this morning, I went in his room and, 
I, I, I got up and I let them sleep in today because they weren't, um, I, I, I didn't send them to school because of the positive COVID in their classroom, right? So they're staying home with me today. And I walk over, so they had slept in a little bit and I walk over and I, and when I get to the door, I see that the light is on and it's, I don't know, seven, five after seven, 10 after seven in the morning, about 30 minutes after they normally get up. And I open the door and he is sitting on his bed reading. And I was like, that's it. Like that, he, that's, he is so freaking compelled by this book that the first thing he, he was still in his pajamas, hadn't brushed his teeth, bed's not made. He's literally sitting cross-legged, right? Reading his book in his bed at age eight. And so like, and then I get like his, his reading test score, you know? And it's like, oh, he, according to the blah, 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 he's, you know, he's, um, uh, at grade level for decoding. I'm like, this is such bullshit. There's no way you could possibly convince me that with that computerized test that you, and, and the, here's the really twisted thing is that, so they, they, um, they've got sick. My son's got sick, like flu stuff. Right. Um, on, on one of the days where they were testing. And so the, 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 it was, it wasn't like the, the, it was like the, whatever they call it, like the baselining to, I don't remember what it was, but it's, so, and it's all computerized. So the teacher was like, Hey, you know, can you have them finish the, 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 um, literacy portion of the test? So, so I can get their, you know, scores finalized, whatever. I'm like, all right, yeah, fine, whatever. So they get online. Right. And, and, and they're, and I'm like, okay, you guys got to do this. And, and they're like, okay. And they're doing it and you know, com they're compliant, not compelled, but compliant. Um, and, my son's like, dad, this, this doesn't make any sense. And I was like, what? And he's like, the, the, the questions they're asking me don't make any sense. And I'm like, okay, he's trying to like duck out of it. So now I go into like bad dad, bad teacher mode. Right. And I'm like, you know, boy, just, you know, work through it. And then I'm like, wait a minute, let me, let me see. One of my things is like to always believe my sons. Like if they say they're full, then don't, force them to eat. Like my mom used to be able to clear your plate. You know, it's like, if you're full, you're full. Right. And, and if it doesn't make sense, it doesn't make sense. So I look at, Oh my God, I, I, I took a screenshot of it. I, 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 maybe I'll dig it up and send it to you. It, I couldn't answer the question. I could not answer the questions and the freaking reading prompt. Like I thought we had, selected like culturally relevant blah, blah 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 the fucking reading prompt was about like no offense john but like 1860s <laughs> like english uh stew or some shit i mean it was just absurd right it's like There's, that psat question about I mean, crew or rowing or whatever right, the hell like it is the yacht, yeah. like absolutely no, no offense taken we are not known for any kind of decent cuisine over here <laughs> not then and not now less so, so now it, I, I just I, I almost lost my shit right and I was just like and, and I was trying to decide like what am I going to do right and I said I said just don't do it just turn it off because th that 
that tension that my eight-year-old is being forced to hold. Like it gave me tremendous anxiety trying to, like, how can I answer this question? This is a third grade prompt and I can't figure it out. Like what I was in my own head, right? And it just made me realize what must that do to a child, right? Who doesn't have a dad with my educational background and my training who, you know, like, oh, this must be, as Chris Gutierrez says, this must be effacing over time, right? And and it's not about reading. It's not. It's about compliance and control. And if you go back and you look at the the, the book that I just wrote, um, that's coming out in the spring, it, uh, does a, a a fairly extensive treatment in the first couple chapters that goes back and looks at the historical origins of public schools. And when you, this is why Malcolm X said, of all the forms of study, the one that's most likely to reward your efforts is the study of history, because the truth is always lying there. And if you look at the history of public schools, what I just described makes total sense. It is precisely what schools were designed to do. And I think until we, one of the real challenges to to do this, to make this shift that we've experienced at Roses too, but I think that is part of the national challenge to make this shift, um, is that there is largely a presumption that schools are a public good. And I think until we get to a place where we can admit that schools are not a public good as they're currently designed, that they are actually institutions that are causing harm to children and then by extension to the sustainability and the health and wellness of our society. And they need to be fundamentally rethought. And that's a big challenge because what do you do with all those kids while you're fundamentally rethinking the project? Do we like just pause public school for a year, right? Where, what will we do with them, right? I don't actually think that's that big of a challenge to sort out, right? But I, I do think that what we've tried to do is we acknowledge that this, this plane or boat, whatever metaphor we wanna use, that's airborne or off to sea is, it's going down. I mean, it is taking on water and, and the wing is falling off. And I think what we've tried to do is to ship some mechanics up there and keep, keep the voyage going and, and start doing the repair. And I think to fundamentally repurpose schools, we got to get it into dry dock and we, we got to be willing to just embrace the fact that we can't, you know, as, as, um, oh, uh, his name is going to escape me right now. Um, he's a professor at Stanford. He, he wrote a book called uh, Tinkering Toward Utopia. And, and, and I think that that is, um, that's what we've been trying to do. And we can't. Um, and, and I'm not sure, I, I'm not arguing for a utopian vision at all, but I am saying that we, we, we've got to stop tinkering around. Tinkering, yeah. And, and we got to do a fundamental rethink. 
Yeah. Revolutionary is what, you know, what the word that keeps coming to mind. Go for it. Well, I was just going to say that that book's by David Tyack and Larry Cuban. What's David up, Tyak? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's oh, you're hiding behind Ed. Oh, look who's joined us. <laughs> <laughs> negotiating uh, for negotiating for a video game time, which is all another. Right. Hey, I mean that's a, that's. I wish I was going to do that now. That's, it's that's an important a, negotiation. <laughs> yeah. So we're trying to take a lot of these really beautiful ideas, right, and wonderful research and a lot of theory and make it practical. And what we'd like to ask you is not necessarily for advice for maybe just the everyday person, but maybe specifically for educators, right? From the classroom up, um, maybe educational leaders, administrators. If you had to kind of choose maybe one thing, I know that's a tough question, right? But maybe one thing that they can do in their classrooms for kids to help achieve sort of this youth wellness, to help kids get closer at least to flourishing, what do you think it is? Where's the juice worth the squeeze? I like that, that, that phrase. Yeah, that metaphor's great. Yeah. Um, I think that the, the, the most skilled educators that I've been around um, at, at pulling off what you just described um, are first and foremost ethnographers of the community that they serve. Um, and the, the, what happens in the classroom reflects the, um, reflects that ethnography, right? Um, and I think that, um, you can't, uh, I, I don't believe that you can, uh, transform the community, um, via the classroom, but I do think that you can transform the classroom via the community. And so I think that's where people need to spend more time. I mean, the truth is, is that um, the overwhelming majority of educators are not from the communities and are not embedded in the communities that they serve. And so they're, you know, I don't know if y'all know the work of Brian Stevenson, um, but I, I referenced him a lot, you know, really well-known um, death row lawyer and, and, um, Sure, I do. I said the name sounds familiar, but yep, I do now. Yep. Yeah. Um, So anyway, I I uh, got to share a stage with him at one point, and and um, one of the things that he said uh, to me that really stuck with me was he was saying that look that the challenge around um, whatever we want to call this, you know, uh, justice. Um, democracy, freedom um, is is not that there aren't a bunch of really smart, committed, talented people working on it because there are. And he said the the challenge, as I see it, is that um, so many of these people that are doing this work, um, they get together to figure out, you know, in this case, like how am I going to make my classroom more responsive, right? Um, and um, and, you know, with the absolute best and, and most righteous of intentions, they, they design an approach that is based largely on their own worldview. And, and then they implement it with like full fidelity. Um, but the problem, he says, which I think is right, 
is that what that effectively becomes is aspirin. And if you give aspirin to somebody that has a headache, it, it will temporarily relieve the symptoms, but it won't stop them from getting headaches. Mm-hmm. And he says, what's needed is proximity to the pain that you have to get proximate to the suffering that you're trying to soothe, resolve, heal, be medicinal to. And you have to understand that the people that are embedded in that suffering know much better than you what they need to relieve that suffering. So you have to go in humbly as a listener, Mm. right? The degrees get checked at the door. And you have to know that our community knows better than you what we need for our children. And you have to listen. And then you, you have to use that, that ethnographic right, work, that inquiry, that data to drive the ways in which you transform your day-to-day practice, your classroom, climate, culture, and curriculum. And that is not how things happen in schools. And I think that, that if hands down, like that was always the best investment I made as a teacher. And so I'll give your listeners like an actual um, strategy on how to do this. Like, this is what I, this is what I did for, from when I first started teaching Um, at the end of each unit. So like literature unit, right? Usually six to eight weeks. Um, I would randomly select a group of five to seven kids from, from each class. And I would um, buy lunch for them, typically pizza. Um, and they would come to my class at lunch. We would sit in a circle. I would set up time it was a yeah. camera. And we would break bread together. And um and I would ask them three questions. And th- th- this was the three questions. The first question was, tell me something that you really liked about this unit and why. Because um, I think it's important that we get some affirmation in this work because it's really hard. Mm-hmm. And we can be really hard on ourselves and, and hypercritical. And I think that's okay as long as there's some balance there and you're making sure that you're acknowledging that all of that effort matters and that you are doing some things that children really value. So that was the first question. The second question is, um, tell me anything about the unit that you that you really would throw out, get rid of, change, that you really did not like, and why? Love it. Okay. And then the third one was... Um, Tell me anything about this class. If you had a magic wand, not the unit itself, but the whole class, the community, the culture, the climate, the curriculum, you could change anything. What would it be and why? That's the best PD I ever got. Wow. I love it. I mean, can I ask, was there a particular answer that you would quite commonly get, Jeff, from the students? Um, Yeah. So the thing that they typically like the most was... um, opportunities to um, perform what they'd learned, right? Like, like not on an exam, but like collectively perform and the opportunity to, to talk like dialogue. This is a great example. You know, my proximity here then. Thank you. I mean, this is great advice. I'm going to try and I'm going to do this with my students. I teach philosophy. I'm going to do this. I mean, I might get particular answers given the period we're in. I sure. imagine the thing we want to change is 
I wish we weren't being taught online for those who get taught online, for example, but I'm totally going to try this. Thank you so much, Jeff, for this brilliant advice. Um, Nick, I know you want to. Well, I just, yeah, I mean, we we're, we need to start wrapping here, Jeff, but um, I just, so much of what you've said today, which has just been absolute fire. We've, I just loved it. Um, come down, comes down to relationships, right? It just comes down to, I think, getting to know other people, interacting with other people, making connections with other people on an individual level, group level, a community level. And I think uh, that's just a great way to kind of bring it full circle because I think we know like one of the single greatest predictors of just well-being across contexts, satisfaction, fulfillment, meaning, purpose is relationships, right? It's other people. Mm -hmm. So, man, we're so appreciative of your time. We know you got so much stuff going on. This has been a real pleasure for me. Like I said, I've I've been a a fan and admirer for a while. So it it was absolutely great to just chill with you and, and spend some time and talk shop. Thank you. Yeah, Thank it's you. been my pleasure and my honor. Thank you so much for creating the space for this conversation. And um, I'll look forward to see what, y- what y'all can do with all that rambling. Absolutely. Oh, it's going to so be many great. Things. Yeah, it's going to be great. So um, we'll put all your social links, you know, your website. Um, we'll promote the, the upcoming book and whatnot in the show notes. Um, maybe reach out to you, maybe a guest blog post or something on some of these topics. But this has been wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, I'd love to. Please, anytime I come when called. Awesome. What's the book called? What's the forthcoming book called, Jeff? <laughs> still, still arm wrestling with that, but um, okay. it, it looks like um, uh, equity versus equality. Equity versus equality. Forthcoming from yeah. Harvard University Press, right? Yeah, yeah. I'll send you the formal title so you can share it with your listeners. Awesome. Fantastic. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks, I'm, Jeff. I'm you have a great afternoon, man. Take care. All right. Take care. See, See you, man. Huge thanks to all of you for listening to today's show. If you like what you heard, please share it with friends, family, colleagues, and be sure to leave us a five-star review. Uh, You can also find us on all social media platforms. Uh, We've got our own YouTube channel, and you can check out our website at flourishfmpodcast.com. We'd also love to hear from you. There's a survey in the show notes you can complete where you can complete any suggestions on guests you'd like to hear us interview or particular topics or themes you'd like to hear us talk about. We'd love to hear your feedback on that. So your feedback would be greatly appreciated if you could fill out that form. Until next time, thank you very much for joining us today. And keep putting in the work.